Well, little lady, once upon a time, there was a young girl named Little Red Riding Hood. Now, she was a feisty one, always wandering off into them woods by herself. One day, her ma sends her off to visit her grandma, who was a-living out in a cabin on the edge of them woods. But little did Little Red know, there was a big old varmint lurking in them woods, a wolf mean as they come. He gets wind of Little Red and her plans to visit her grandma and decides to intercept her. So Little Red sets off on her journey, baskets of goodies in hand and a skip in her step. But the wolf, he ain't no fool. He gets to Grandma's cabin first, disguises himself as the old lady, and waits for the Little Red to arrive. When she does, she's none the wiser, and starts chatting away with the wolf, not knowing he ain't her grandma at all. But just as the wolf is about to make his move and gobble her up, a brave woodsman comes in and saves the day. He takes care of that wolf real good and reunites Little Red with her grandma. And from then on, Little Red makes sure to stick to the path and never wander off into them woods alone again. Welcome, dear listener, to another episode of the Religions Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Gardner. The story I just read for you was one that was written by a machine. It wrote it especially for me when I gave it the request, Tell me the story of Little Red Riding Hood in the style of John Wayne. I must confess that I was startled at how well the story turned out and how in about 10 seconds a computer did something that only a few months ago was a skill that required a human to perform. To me as a person who writes and has, you know, tried very much to write in the voice of another character so that it sounds unique and not like me, um, it was almost, un, you know, unnerving, a little overwhelming. But uh, the story, the same story, if I had written it, probably would have taken me hours and would quite possibly have been something that wouldn't have been as good or as cowboy-esque as this thing was, even though there would have been some things that I may have changed, like Intercept. Yeah, I don't know if John Wayne would have used Intercept. He might have, you know. He, he used words like that every now and then, I guess. But anyway, um, I never thought that I would live in an age where computers can generate language. And it's even more surprising that I, you know, as I realized that the company, OpenAI, has its technology, which uh, they call... ChatGPT, by the way. It's in beta release right now. It's doing all this, and it's still in beta. It's, it's in development. It's not, you know, ready for market, or, well, it's not, it's not there yet. It's in beta still. So that's, I'm already really impressed. Pretty amazing stuff. Which leads me into the topic for today's discussion. In order to prep you for this conversation, I want to share an experience with you. When I was a missionary, and I was experiencing what we call culture shock, I was often led to think about how language had affected my upbringing and how things might have been different if I had been raised speaking Spanish as my native language instead of English. Let me give you an example of what I mean. Um, how we say something in both languages, for example. In English, if a young child is hungry and doesn't like the food that they're given, they might say something like, I don't like tacos. In Spanish, the child would say, no me gustan los tacos. Now, that's the nearest translation between the two. That's what everybody, every Spanish teacher would tell you is the equivalent phrase. But the thing is, they don't mean the same thing. In English, the phrase, I don't like tacos, I am the subject of the sentence, and I am the thing that is not liking the tacos. If you change that into the Spanish, no me gustan los tacos, it's the tacos are not pleasing to me. A more literal, more literal translation. So, the tacos are responsible for not pleasing me. Or they are the subject of the sentence. So that changes things a little bit. Now, in which language do you think the parent is more likely to get after the child and make them sit at the table and wait for hours until they decide to overcome their dislike and eat it? Now, see, in a Latin-speaking country, it's not the child's fault, it's the food's fault. You get the idea? Language affects how you think, and in some way actually governs the thoughts that you have. Because, I don't know, if you're like me, you think verbally more, most often, probably. And, uh, and you're limited by the language that you speak. So, in our topic today, which is, we're going to be talking about language, I've got Alec, Dr. Alex Walker, and I'm going to let him do his own introduction. I might also point out that this was recorded over a year ago, so it's not super current, 
and uh, events may be a little bit different and maybe and maybe a little untimely, but it's an excellent interview, and I'm so grateful for Alex for taking the time to do it. So anyway, with no further delay, let's get straight to the interview with Dr. Alex Walker. Well, welcome again to the Religions Podcast. We are excited today. I'm interviewing Alex Walker. And uh, Alex, you were introduced to me by my brother James. After I did my interview with him, he says, hey, you need to talk to this friend of mine, Alex Walker. And uh, I, well, here I am talking to you months <laughs> later. So Alex, tell us, take a minute, and if you don't mind, tell us a little about yourself. Who are you and, and what do you do? So um, I am an American living in Australia. I have a PhD in linguistics, and I am currently employed by James Cook University here in the wet tropics of Australia. And I have been doing various things as a professional linguist, well, for many years now. But in particular, I do a lot of work with endangered and extinct languages, especially of California. And I've also been trying to get into some work in Papua New Guinea. Um, that work was just getting going when COVID hit and kind of derailed the entire research program. But there are there are wow. there there are plans to try and get back into it if and when travel resumes and I have the means and ability to do so. Sure. Well, that's uh, that's fascinating. You said something that intrigued me there. Um, endangered or ex nearly extinct languages. We think of, you know, endangered species. We don't think of extinct or endangered languages. That's, uh, at least that's a fairly new thought to me. Um, maybe, maybe to some of the listeners too. But uh, obviously, I know that there's lang there are languages which we don't speak anymore, so that shouldn't be foreign to me. But uh, so, what languages are are currently? Um, you said Papua New Guinea, so I'm assuming they have a language that's very few people are aware of the linguistic diversity that, to some degree, still uh, is present on the earth, but used to be the the norm, and um, if, for example, in 1500, if you were to take a survey of the world, you would have a huge number of places speaking many, many more languages than you would currently find. So just, just North America alone had hundreds of indigenous languages. South America oh, as right. well. Um, because of all the different Australia tribes. Australia had hundreds. Um, and then, of course, when you get to... Just the island of New Guinea has about a thousand different languages. It's the most oh diverse my area. California alone had between, depending on how you count, 50 to 100 languages native to it. Um, and most of the languages of North America and Australia and uh, to a lesser degree South America are already um, no longer spoken by any children, if anyone at all, or are headed in that direction. Um, and, and, and many languages have... Are, are completely gone. So my home state is Florida. Um, the Spanish, as you probably grew up learning uh, about, um, arrived in Florida in the 1500s. They gave it its name. Um, the famous story of Ponce de Leon, right? And the Fountain of Youth. Right. What they didn't tell you is he was actually a slave raider. He went there to get slaves because they had completely depopulated the Caribbean and they were out of people. And so they went to Florida uh, and they were very successful. By the time America took Florida over, the very last natives were for a few Tamuqua up around St. Augustine who were evacuated to Cuba. So a whole peninsula that's you know incredibly rich in water and food and never has a bad winter. And so you would imagine would have had a very dense population, completely depopulated. And we don't wow. even know which languages were spoken south of the St. Augustine area. We just know the names of the tribes. So I used to own a house on an island that is, uh, had the very original name of Barrier Island because they got <laughs> into an argument about what to name it. Uh, actually, it came down to the whole Ponce de Leon thing. There was a push from a Latino organization to name it Ponce de Leon Island, and then people said he killed all the Indians. And then everyone said, we'll just keep the government survey name of Barrier Island. Anyway, the native <laughs> people there were called the Ais. And now you know every word that we know of that language. That's it. Ais. That's it, huh? Ais? That's it. We know, 
we know a little about how they live. We know that they built structures out of palm trees and fronds and fished, and that's it. Gone. Wow. So it, this is happening and it's accelerating now. And um, their, their, their projections that say that by the end of the century, perhaps half of all languages on earth that are still spoken will no longer be spoken. So it's kind really? of a really sad really? thing. Yeah. It's, it, it, I've been, you know, working in this world for, you know, 20 years and it's, it, it's, it's really a weird, heavily politicized, very depressing world. Um, but it's also an important one because languages aren't species. People think of, they use that analogy, right? They think of like, oh, it's like species, but each language is more of an ecosystem. So right now people argue, but there's probably 6,000-ish, 7,000-ish languages spoken. Each of those languages is an ecosystem. That's how rich it is. So when one blinks out, you're losing an entire worldview, an entire way of interacting um, with other people and with the world and with, and, and, and with, well, nature, everything just gone. So you're comparing the, uh, the language environment, the, the, uh, the way that they uh, talk to one another, the way, the way they interface in language to, to their environment. Is that, am I catching that correctly? I'm saying that rather than comparing languages as speak to species where people think, Oh, we're losing languages just like we're losing species. Right. To lose a language is not like, say, losing a type of fish. To lose just one language is like losing the entire Amazon. I see what you're saying. That's the level I of richness. That's the level of complexity. And I think that people can't grasp that. But if you think about right now as we're speaking, everything that's going on here, like I'm indexing who I am both covertly and directly by means of my accent, the, the words I'm choosing, my intonation, my hand movements, my facial expressions, right. what I'm wearing, what you're wearing. It's all part of our, our linguistic culture. There's so many subtleties and so many layers. And imagine if English just blinked out, you know, that's all gone. You know, the, the all those subtleties and all the things that like, when I can just say, I'm a native of Florida, and you know I'm not saying I am an American Indian. You know I'm saying that I was born in Florida. And you know that Florida's a state, and it's one of 50 states, and that it's part of a country that has right. this history that is an English country. We have all these things, and that whole level of richness, little languages with only 20 speakers, 100 speakers, have that same level of richness, if not sometimes greater richness. Wow. So, like, I was working in Papua New Guinea and trying to get a research visa, which is very hard to get. I made four trips there preparatory to trying to get the research visa. And I worked uh, three of those trips. I was working with elders in a community called Panim. So Panim is the Anglicization. So all the, all the government maps up there spelled P-A-N-I-M. And that's a name that's been used all the way back to the German colonial period, hundred plus years ago. However, it is a, it is an approximation of their real name, which is Banim. Banim. They have a, a sound that's called a, a voiced, bilabial implosive where actually air sucks in instead of going out um, which you know you you actually find it in some mayan languages you find it in southeast asia you find it in parts of africa there was one language in california that had it so it's not a super unusual sound in the sense that you never find it but it's 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 a less common sound well the the clicking in in african languages i don't even know which one but that's that takes an inhale as well i imagine so uh no the clicks in african languages and there there are several there's a lot of diversity there but all those languages are are that have these click sounds are restricted to africa except for one ritual language called damin that was supposed to have been spoken on island of australia clicks actually involve something slightly different um you have two points of constriction and basically um, there is a little bit of that where like when you, you're going to release, you'll release uh, one and it'll, it, the air that sucks in, it's hard to explain, but basically like, Oh, I, really I guess I can make it kind of, <laughs> kind of. So, so um, you, you think you can, but actually like, for example, one of the languages in Africa that has these click sounds has over 70 of them. Oh wow! Yeah, so the, totally distinct. Fact, 
so yeah, completely distinct. And the, I mean, we're talking like, so the, the, the front closure can be with the lips, tongue against the teeth, tongue uh, against the alveolar ridge, tongue raised to the palate. The back closure can be in the uvula, it can be at the velar. And then you can also have what your vocal fold settings are. Do you have your vocal folds drawn all the way open? So, so for a period of aspiration, do you have them um, partially together? So there's vibration, so modal voicing. Are there points in between like breathy voicing or slack voice? And then is your velum lowered for nasalization? You put all those things together, you end up with like this insane grid. So actually the, the language on earth with the most consonants is a click language in Africa. Wow. So and so they're all linguistically different. All 70 are, are linguistically, they're, they're all, so none of them are interchangeable. That's, that's they're crazy. They're as different <laughs> as a B and a G, B and G. They're as different as that. Wow. So that is fascinating. It's, it's pretty amazing. And again, that's the thing we're losing. Like those languages, those languages used to be spoken in more areas and Africans from West Africa speaking what are called Bantu languages expanded down and, and I don't know, maybe 3000 years ago started pushing down and, you know, people argue about it, but honestly, within the last thousand years, they finally made it to parts of South Africa and kind of were slowly overwhelming through marriage, through war, whatever you want to call it, those native languages that preceded them. Some like um, Zulu, incorporated a few clicks into the language. So you you know they pass through those populations because though the populations might be gone, the Bantu speakers have some click sounds that they added into theirs. But nothing that like the first from, would gotcha. have. I think Zulu has 16 clicks maybe. Whereas again, wow. you got like 70 in the way. Way shy of 70. So yeah, pretty crazy stuff. So yeah, you're losing this all this diversity right now and it's it's blinking out and there's, you know, there's some funding for it and the UN will have like Indigenous Language Day and all this stuff, but there's so many factors that come into play. I mean, a lot of languages become endangered because of genocide, but that's one, that's one path that in the past is probably the primary path. But well, now, we, say again? We like to think that today, uh, I mean, I would like to live in a world where I think the genocide isn't something that still happens. Um <laughs> But obviously, Rwanda wasn't that long ago. We should all know about that. So but you're saying that that's the main, one of the main reasons for it being wiped in out. Pa- in the past, um, genocide oh, is still going on right now. I mean, uh, I don't know if you and your listeners are familiar with what happened to the Yazidi, but that was just... No, I am not. That's Well, that's shocking. Uh, it, 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 it's shocking. You should know. Everyone should know. Um, under the... Pre- under the... Well, I don't want to make it political, but one of our one of our administrations um there is a religion an ethno-religious group in the middle east called the azidi and it's almost impossible to find out accurate information about them because they are so tight-knit it, it, it's, it's not like you think there's not like a documentary and they're not open about their beliefs it's probably some sort of synchristic religion that merges elements of islam with a pre-islamic uh, religion possibly um, you know, either something like some versions of Rastrianism and or um, some some more complex kind of pantheon of gods like you find uh, in Hinduism. And okay. they just refuse to completely assimilate to their Islamic conquerors. And so they have this kind of weird, and, and that's one version. It's very controversial. But their Islamic neighbors insisted and, and, and many Westerners uh, would buy into this, that they worship Satan because their word for this peacock god sounded like oh, Satan. Oh, really? So they, were, oh, they would regularly be accused of being Satan worshipers and just get massacred. So under the ISIS folks in Iraq, um, this decade, well, last decade, I guess, but within the last few years, they were attacked. All the men and boys were murdered. And the women were sold in markets wow. as sex slaves. This has happened in the last five to ten years. There's actually a, a, a survivor who's out there trying to get people to know about it. She was supposed to speak in Canada this year to a school, and it was canceled because it was determined that what she had to say, her whole family murdered, and she was a rape for four years as a sex slave, that what she had to say might hurt the feelings of Muslim students. Oh. 
And, and so that genocide is definitely a major way that we have a linguistic loss. But what's happening now, in addition to that, because I, I want to make it clear, that still happens. You have these pressures of globalization, right? And pressures of education. If you speak a language with a thousand speakers, and up in, in New Guinea, this is really common, that you might speak a language. Like I, I have friends up there who are completely fluent in a language that has at best 5,000 speakers. And that's considered a very kind of, healthy language. It's a limited marketplace. It's completely fine when you stay in the village, you stay near near the village, but you're gonna have to speak a second or third language. That's not a big problem. But if you're just a normal person and you're, 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 meeting, you're in a city mingling, there is a good chance that you're gonna marry someone from a different language, right? It's just a good chance, Makes there's sense. a good chance. And now, what's the likelihood that your kids are going to learn your language and her language, and then the shared language y'all have to speak with each other, which in uh, New Guinea, in Papua New Guinea, is Tokpisin. It's very common for, for you know, for example, I've got friends. I, I know people who speak natively Wagi and and Pani fluently. These are related, but fairly distantly related. Sort of like English and like Icelandic. That's about how close they are. So very Not different. Very close. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, pretty close. Like English and Icelandic would have been mutually intelligible 1,500 years ago, right? Whereas English okay. and Chinese, well. <laughs> if they ever shared the same source, we're talking, you know, the Pleistocene. So so, okay. so they have some things in common. So, for example, it'd be, it's easier sure. for you to learn Icelandic than it would be for you to learn a click language in Africa because Icelandic is ultimately closer to English. Okay, I can understand that. Okay, so that yeah. does make a bit of a difference. And then they all speak Tokpisin, which is the, the lingua franca, the language of regular discourse, uh, which is an English-based Creole. And then they all understand English to a varying degree. So let's say you get, I got my friend, he speaks Tokpisin, he reads English, and he fluently speaks, you know, Panim and Wagi. And now he marries a woman who speaks Amale. What language will the kids learn? Whatever is most beneficial, I imagine, for them. Whatever, whatever they perceive yep. to be most beneficial or, or whatever is most spoken around. Them. Or now that makes sense too, because they're going to, they're going to learn and what the they absorb, right? It's not going to be, it's what they, it's what they hear. So often what happens is these kids will have a passive knowledge. They will, they will be able to understand in broad strokes what people are saying in all these languages, but they have no spoken competence. So when they then have kids, it's over and you can just track it. So like in Panim, 100 years ago, everyone in the village spoke Panim. In the 1950s, everyone still spoke Panim. In the 70s, everyone started switching to talk Bisin. And so when I went there, I met no one under 50 who spoke Panim fluently and no one under 30 who could passively understand it. Wow. So, yeah. And it just happened that fast. And that was not through genocide. There was no government persecution it was absolutely not a genocidal situation. It was just pure, like you said, the pressures of globalization and 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 what would help you, what would benefit your kids the most. And right. when you go to market to sell your your bananas, you know what are you going to speak? And it just happens so fast. Well, I think you could. It's happened all over the world. Just as an example of that, and this is something I learned. You know, I speak Spanish. I, I learned Spanish, and I'm a Spanish teacher, so. Um, one of the things one of my instructors taught me, and you can probably correct me if I'm wrong on this, but in English, you know, we have this weird thing where we, we talk about cow when we're talking about the living animal, and then we talk about beef when we're talking about the meat product. And from what I understand, that was what the Germanic tribes that we sold the cow meat to called the meat product. So we, we absorbed that word, um, beef, in kind of a similar way to what you're talking about, I think, um, because... The product we sold was beef. We started calling it beef. Now, now the meat product from the cow is beef. Well, that's what, what you're talking about is a phenomenon that that happened in English and has happened in several other languages, where you have these layers of control. And English is really unusual in that it is the most spoken language on earth, and so that just makes it a weird thing because there have never been so many people on earth. And there has never been a time when any language has been spoken or read or understood by as many people as as English currently is. And it's got a very weird history. And part, I think, of its power 
comes not just from, you know, obviously uh, England and America were very potent colonial powers and, and had a lot to do, but sure. you know, you, you know, uh, Spain was no slouch uh, at one pe- period there. And, oh, no. and there's a lot of Spanish in the world too. It's probably it, number two. I don't know. It is, <laughs> but it, it, it doesn't really take off outside of Spanish dominated places. And I think the real reason is right. the history of Spanish is quite different than the history of English. English is a language that's, um, I don't want to use loaded terms. All languages are equally beautiful and wonderful, but you could imagine someone from the outside saying that it's heavily adulterated by levels of conquest. And so when the French speaking Normans invaded and conquered, right? English Uh was kicked aside as the language of the court for several centuries. And it was the language of peasants alone. And so what you have is you have these Norman French words being perceived as higher status or being associated with with the people in power. And they will then either supplant our native words, which happened a lot. That's why it's so much harder for us to learn German than it is for us to learn Spanish, because a huge amount of our vocabulary has been lost. It's been pushed out by Latinate, shall we call them borrowings, right? Um, So, for example... There's a name that you will have heard, possibly. It's not a super common name, but I can think right now off the top of my head of one famous author with it. It's the last name Frith. Have you ever heard that name Frith? I don't think so. Okay. I, I've run across it. There's a there's some books by a guy with the name Frith. F-R-I-T-H, Frith. Frith is okay. the native English word for peace. So the oh. native English word for peace is a nominalization of the word free. Just like you say warm warmth free frith and if you think about it if we still had that word there is a connotation to it that we now no longer have right when you've nominalized Uh free so now we say freedom but freedom doesn't mean peace does it freedom means some big idea i do what i want but peace used to be based off the root for free peace is a non-native word it's borrowed from think of the spanish word right what's the spanish word yeah Yeah. So we've lost that, but sometimes we keep both. So cow, beef, pig, pork, right? Right. Lamb, mutton, or sheep, mutton, rather. And what happened there is the people above us, they get to eat the meat. (laughs) So we're, (laughs) we're, we're on the master's estate, you know, having like, some nasty bread with like rodent droppings in it. And, you know, maybe we get an <laughs> egg and we, and, and we raise the meat and we watch the master eat it. So we, we raise the cow and give it to the master. He's eating beef. So you, you'll have, we're going to call it that history. too. So we can, we can, we can play to his class, right? <laughs> <laughs> we, we learn the words and you see that, like <clears throat> that confusion that reigned when finally French lost its hold and the, the upper classes started speaking English when you look at legal language, they didn't know what to do. So that's why to this day in English, you'll have, you'll have doublets. So you'll say, this is his will and testament. Will is the native Anglo-Saxon word. Testament was the French borrowing. And the legal folks couldn't be sure you'd know both words. They could just pick testament. Maybe you never heard of that word. But will, ah, maybe you don't know that one either. So they'll just call it your will and testament. That's interesting. I so didn't know that. You have so you lose words like with frith. You'll have them. You'll have them take on slightly different meanings, like with cow and beef, or they'll really not have different meanings in certain contexts, but they'll coexist there, and the ambiguity is frozen in time. So English is really cool that way if you're into that, or it's not cool if you're not into it. And if you think of Spanish, think think of the vocabulary in Spanish and how. Yeah, they, you know, they, they had some more recent borrowings where they reached back into Latin or Greek, but for the most part, it has a much more, it has a less diverse, um, in the sense of the word origins, you know, group base sure. of words. Right. Right. Yeah, no, the, and, the, and it, uh, the Spanish spoken in the United States, you know, is, is very heavily borrowed from English, of course, but that's just the spoken, the written language is very much still Latin. Really, right. They might be puchar, but it's not really right. Like they'll have, you know, <laughs> right? You know what I mean? Like they'll, they'll take a few words. Dame un right, yeah, yeah. They 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 come up with just a few words. You're right. 
Yeah, if you think about fundamentally, right, look, looking at Spanish, you can see that the words relate to each other in the same way as free frith, don't they? They have that kind of relationship, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And we don't have that, do we? We don't, in English, we really, I think what makes it challenging for us as English speakers when we want to break into an academic pursuit is everything's opaque. We don't have that, those, those obvious relationships. You never know. Right, what's that makes on. sense. You and that, that's something that Spanish opened up to my mind that wasn't existent in my mind in English is the, the relationships between words and how they, you know, different, well, even verbs. I didn't understand how to conjugate verbs in English because we add more words where <laughs> it's just a different way of doing it, you know. Well, we lost all that. Old English was just like Spanish it, where you conjugate the verb for person and number and tense. So, you know, I sing versus thou singest versus y'all sing versus I sang, all that would have different suffixes, just like in Spanish. And then just over the course of Viking invasions, Norman invasions, everything just sort of got stripped down until we have this really sad uh, paradigm, which is nothing, 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 and then add an S for third person singular present indicative. And then- <laughs> Sort of well, that, uh, that explains what happened to that and why why it's a new concept. And people that are learning Spanish say, why do we have to do this conjugation stuff? This drives me crazy because they I don't know. think they're doing it. <clears throat> What's funny is like English speakers think that Spanish is like really, really hardcore. But in fact, many, if not most of the languages that were spoken on Earth have much more complicated um, morphology, which is the bits of words that go together than Spanish. So Spanish is like easy peasy compared to most languages. Well, I can agree with that. But, I prefer to speak Spanish to, to English, English a lot of the it, time. You know, English is quite challenging, right? Because in English, right. let's conjugate the verb to have. Have, has, had, we're done. Now, <laughs> That's Spanish, all we got. I don't even think I could conjugate the verb from memory anymore all the way, you know? Tener, tengo, tienes, tiene, tenemos, tienen. Right. Tubieron. <laughs> I can't remember half of them, you know, Andre, like it's, 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 I think it's decently challenging. There's a lot to learn. Well, it's very, uh, it's cool and structured and, and we don't think of our language that way. Uh, oftentimes this as being structured, but it is very structured or it can be, I think I suppose, depending on the language. It can be. Well, and that's why it's when you lose, when you lose a language, you lose so much. So like the language I've worked the most on, which is Southern Pomo. My wife's a member of the director of Grand Tree Band of Pomo Indians in California. And her great aunt was the last speaker. And before I was a linguist, I met her in 2000. And I was like, oh man, that's crazy. She speaks this language from California. I've never heard of. I'm going to go get a book about it. There are no books. There's no books. There's nothing. And you know, there was nothing. So I'm, I'm, I'm the kind of guy with that sort of personality where I guess next thing you know, that's an obsession. And before you know it, I get a PhD in it. <laughs> and um, actually just last year, I, my grammar of the language came out. So I wrote a book about it. So now there's a book. Oh, fascinating. Um, well, you'll have to tell us about your book here at the end too. Well, the, the language blew my mind. So this language, verbs are built off of roots, but the roots can never stand on their own. And the roots are very vague. So in English, you'd be like, all right, man, that is a root. Manly. Now we have, right, an adverb, okay. right, that he has a manly walk or he, or, or I guess it's an adjective there. He walked. Yeah. Yeah. But the root still man. And we can nominalize it. Manliness, the quality of being manlike, but the root still man. And we can prefix it. That was unmanlike. Ooh. Right. I'm right. Yeah. The root still man. So in English, man, the root is often a word that can be on its own. In Southern Pomo, you'll have a single syllable root on the verb, and it has to be preceded by what's called an instrumental prefix. They have over 20 prefixes that let you know by what means the verb was accomplished. And it's really crazy. And then you have to suffix it with something. So I'll give you the root that means roughly to encounter, okay? Roughly, to encounter, okay? okay? And I'll give it to you in the perfective, which is the citation form of verbs, with some different prefixes to show you how crazy this is. Crazy in a good way. So, bitau is to taste. You can break it down 
it has B as its instrumental prefix. And that prefix means with soft opposing forces. Whoa. Now you've encountered something with your lips. Taste. Soft opposing forces on the lips is what that's referring to? It means literally to encounter with soft opposing forces. To taste. Interesting. Now let's take the same root. Let's add the prefix P. The prefix P, so we have P tau. P means with the with the eyes or in a sweeping like like a sweeping lengthwise swing. Uh, so in other words, if you were to swing an axe or with the eyes, and the way they're related semantically is when you like sweep with your eyes, that imagine okay. like your eyes having a vertical thing. So they they conceive of swinging a bat or an axe as being the same activity as sweeping your vision. Okay. Peak ow is to look like. In other words, to encounter with the eyes. So I could say, if I say, oh, it looks good. Okay. Okay, it is well encountered with the eyes. See, see, it means with liquid. So if I say, oh, it tastes good, but you can only say that of soup or a drink. You can't say that of solid. Da, da means originally meant with the palm of the hand. And then there was a semantic extension since your hands are in front of you as you might be feeling forward through bushes or whatever. It came to mean with the face and with the, with the eyes. So dot ow means to meet somebody. Dot um yeah, we'll meet each other. Wow. And it goes all the way through. Got ow to encounter by biting. You know, I mean, there's no, it, it's, it, so just think of this. <clears throat> English speakers, because we have such an impoverished language in terms of our morphology, we assume that all languages are composed of X number of words. And so you'll encounter English speakers who brag about how many words there are in the English language. Right. Completely unaware that other languages with, with much richer morphology have an absolutely infinite number of words that are possible because they're composed of these bits. So there was a, a, a the late linguist Robert Oswald, who worked on a neighboring Como language to kind of, you know, highlight this, pointed out that by picking the right root and the right prefix, Kashaya Pomo had a single word that meant to search for fish bones in your teeth with your tongue. <laughs> well, there you go. And, and it was a short word, which is two syllables, but it made sense compositionally. Sure. You get so, all you get it all so put that, together and all the pieces are there and 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 you've got a whole sentence there. out of one word. So I, I was studying this language, and of course I'm like, oh my gosh, like I didn't know this is possible. They have endings called evidentials. So you can put an ending on the verb that lets the listener know whether the information you just relayed was acquired through hearsay, whether you saw it yourself, whether it's a known fact, or whether you only heard it. Well, that would be useful in a news report, wouldn't it? It would, wouldn't it? And it'd also be great for <laughs> lying. Yeah, great way to lie, right? You, have, yeah. you put the wrong. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's crazy. That's then, fascinating. My favorite ones is they have about twenty suffixes that indicate direction of movement. So, you put it on the verb, and it would mean like to go away, to go around something, to go across something, to go down from off of down into, up, you know, up against, out from in. Like, there's one suffix that means if I tell you to leave, it would mean that you are within a man-made structure and you must leave from within that structure to come to the outside. And there's a different suffix that would mean for you to leave from the outside and go into go a man-made in. structure. So, of course, Interesting. right? Yeah. As you would do. Makes sense. There's a lot fewer words to, to say it if you're just using suffixes to do it, right? <laughs> And then for kinship terms, you know, we have like mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, cousin, brother, sister, aunt, uncle, niece, nephew, son, daughter, right. brother, sister. We're done. We're done. Spanish has, I think, a little bit more, if I remember correctly, right? I think it has a few more discrete terms for. Well, you know, it probably like, does, you know, but that's not my strong suit in, in the language either. <laughs> Uh, I remember in either language, like English or, or Spanish, it's not my strong suit. I think didn't Spanish have like its own <clears throat> single words for in law, like sister in law or brother in law, or something like that. 
Yes. Yeah, it's its distinct word. Cuñado. Yeah. Right. Well, cuñado, so, I think. In Southern Pomo, you have a different kinship root for your older sister versus a younger sibling, your older brother versus younger sibling, your mother's older sister versus your mother's younger sister, your mother's mother versus your father's mother, your mother's father versus your father's father, your father's, uh, you know, older brother versus your father's younger brother, and so on and so forth. Wow. And so you had these, these discrete roots, but then you could not say the root on its own. You have to prefix it with a possessive prefix. So in other words, every kinship term is obligatorily possessed by someone. So you can't just say mom. Like when I taught the language, I taught the language for three years at my wife's tribe. They'd be like, all right, how do you say mom? I'm like, who's mother and what was she doing? Because <laughs> that's you know, part of what needs to be there. there. But that's what needs to be there. You have to say, is it my mother, your mother, his mother, his own mother? Is she the agent of a clause? Is she the patient of a clause? Is she possessing something? Or is there more than one of her? I need to know. Are you addressing her directly? If so, are you doing it formally or informally? And that's and, a powerful you know, concept right there that so much can be interlaced into one into the word instead of instead of being described like we have to make a sentence to describe who the person is. And 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 what makes it really sad is that how do you get there? How do you have a language with all this, right? The truth is is we're all human. We have roughly the same cognitive abilities. Right. Different communities develop different cultures over time. And over vast stretches of time, they speak with each other every day, day in, day out, century after century. And those concepts that are most important to people culturally, if there's no disturbing outside action, this is important. If you don't get invaded, if there's not a plague, if there's not a tsunami, if a volcano doesn't cook you. I mean, there's a lot of ifs. Sure. You really need to be in a place that doesn't have that. And so it's it's not surprising that California had this diversity because it's got mild weather and has had mild weather for you know thousands of years, right? Mm-hmm. And sure. it's got topographical um, complexity. So you have lots of different watersheds and you can just sit down, probably be safe from invasion for 10,000 years and have a chance to develop your maximum potential of what you cared about as a culture. And so in their culture, what do they care about? They care about family. So they have this elaborate kinship system where you instantly have to say who the kinsman is to you and they care about sources of information. If you don't have a written language and you don't have the wheel and you don't have horses and you don't have agriculture, you have a lot of gossip. And so you need to know what's going on, right? (laughs) Sure. And sure enough, and, and, and again, if you're walking everywhere and you've got hills and mountains and rivers, you're... You need to talk about the direction. Did you go up a mountain? Did you go down a mountain? Did you cross a river? 10,000 years later, all those things are little pieces on the word. And then all it took was 100 years of Americans to kill everybody off, and that's gone. So to get that back, it's sort of like elephants. If the elephants go extinct, for Earth to re-evolve a mammal at that size, we know when we look oh. back at the extinction of the non-avian dinosaurs, uh. You're yeah. looking at 10 to 20 million years. Right. We're not going to see that. Not we, well, yeah. We we're not going see to see it. Somebody will, but we not might, us. <laughs> we might be the thing that becomes that, right? Like that's how far. <laughs> so it's a tremendous loss. Every time this goes away, a tremendous loss. And and we don't even fully understand these languages. I mean, they're blinking out all around us before anyone can even hope to, to I mean, I wouldn't claim to be fluent in this language. I know just enough, like a veneer of its, of its richness. And it's just, it's really sad. So going back to your original question saying you and maybe your listeners have never thought about this. It's a huge bummer, <laughs> but it's, well, it's worth caring about and looking into if, if you have an interest in it. And, and where should we go if we are interested? Can you give us some resources some places we can go? You're talking about news that's happening, you know, places getting wiped out and we're not seeing it. Where do we, where do we find that kind of thing? Um, I'm, I sit on the board of a nonprofit called the Western Institute for Endangered Language Documentation. Its um, website is WieldOC, so that's W-I-E-L, <clears throat> sorry, D-O-C, um, you know, doc. so WieldOC, not Wield, yeah, .org, .org. 
Okay. And I'll, I'll get that from you to put in the show notes too, so that they'll have access to that on the website. And um, so I, you know, I need to go in and update it, but there, you, you can play around and navigate in there and there's some interesting tidbits and some inf- information. Um, and it's a, that's a good springboard. Um, we, we came with okay. a, a concept we call fragmented languages. Um, this idea that yes, you have extinct languages. Sometimes they've been euphemistically called dormant in the hopes they could be restored. Um, you have endangered languages, but what about languages that don't have living speech communities for which the documentation is incomplete? And that a lot of my work so, has been in that regard. Okay. And there, I'm assuming, and, th- and you tell yeah. me if I'm wrong, but I'm guessing that the several of the languages you said, what, 7,000? You know, Did you say then, that number earlier? It, it's, not a, it's not a hard and fast number because... Well, it would be hard some, to count. Some languages, you could... The, the the line between a language and dialect, it's fuzzy. Right. Right. And probably, I'm sure there's disagreement between where that line lies between linguists. There's a famous quote that a, a language is a dialect with a navy, an army and a navy, right? So. <laughs> okay. So I, I'm assuming that of those 7,000, though, that there are several... Um, several being a very ambiguous term, but I'm sure a lot of them aren't even written. Am I right? Uh, yeah, well, most languages weren't written. Uh, now, probably more are just because there's a there's a a Protestant kind of, I guess, I think you call it evangelical group called the Summer Institute of Linguistics. And they have done a tremendous amount of work um, to translate the Bible into every language possible. Um, so they're hugely influential in, in Papua New Guinea. Um, for example, like- I'm Documenting Pani, the language. The closest language related to Panim is Amale. Amale has quite a few speakers. And I actually have a Bible written in Amale, thanks to SIL. So, um, so it's not that hard. It's not hard to write any language. You just go in you, as a linguist, you figure out what sounds are in the language and you create an orthography. But I noticed that like. So it's not a distinct alphabet. You're just, you're just writing the sounds in, I, I don't know what you call your way of writing down or no, graphically representing the sounds. It'd be an alphabet for them. You might use like for Southern Pomo, I, I use phonetic symbols that come from the Americanist tradition. Um, for Northeastern Poma, which is a fragmented language I've been working on since 2013, uh, that tragically lost its last fluent speakers about 1970, and there was never much work done on it, so we'll never really know enough. But I've, I've actually um, wow. collected every, as far as I know, every extant word ever recorded from fluent speakers. I've got a dictionary manuscript. And I'm uh, the tribe was wiped out so completely by Spanish slave raids that the survivors um, weren't even acknowledged uh, Western scholars did not know that their language existed until 1902 and they're in California. Wow. And um, so I'm, I'm in contact with the descendants of the last survivors and um, they're wonderful people. They remember many words um, and they're trying to um, we're working together to form a nonprofit for them preparatory to what we hope will become a chance for them to finally get federal recognition. They've never, ever had federal recognition. They've never had a reservation. They've never had any kind of rights as federally recognized um, Native Americans. And so I've designed a different orthography for them. So their, theirs is, doesn't use phonetic symbols. Okay. Um, so the point being is how you choose to write, like you could write an Arabic script, you could write it, it, it is irrelevant. It's the principles that, that underlie the creation of the orthography. And it's not that hard. But what I've noticed is like colloquially in English, people really think that whether a language is written or not matters a great deal for some reason. You know, there's there's this perception that that's what makes it like language. Well, there can be seems like there can be books if it's written. If it's not written, then it's passed down by word of mouth and it can be lost more easily. Am I correct? There? <sighs> yes and no. I mean. So like the Iliad. The Iliad was written down, and we have it. Right. But before it was written down, it was memorized verbatim and passed on orally for centuries. And the Vedas, right, the oldest stratum of of Sanskrit literature, probably weren't written down until about 2,000 years ago. But they are at least 3,000 years old. So they were passed down verbatim, 
orally for a thousand years. They were an oral tradition for a thousand years. We're talking wow. like Old Testament length books memorized. Um, so I don't know. I don't know. So I, I guess and maybe this uh, and maybe this plays to cons- to something. That, you know, I've been thinking about this getting ready to teach the New Testament to my seminary class or the Old Testament. Excuse me. Um, <clears throat> we're we're. Uh, in our society, we worry a lot about, is it is it perfectly accurate? Is it exactly as, you know, like the way the story was first told, is it exactly the same? And with an oral tradition, it seems like there would be a great variation, like the, the telephone game where you whisper into the next person's ear and, you know, and something completely different comes out at the end. Um, how much in the past did people just worry about what is the main purpose of the story? How much was the purpose the main focus? Versus, you know, the exact details of the retelling. Hmm. So you're, you're, what you're trying to do is distinguish between some sort of core purpose and everything else that might, that might be a part of a version of a story. So, for example, if, if I understand your question right, if we're talking about the story of three little pigs, the purpose would be listen to your elders and any iteration of the three little pigs it could be like the 12 little sheep. It would be irrelevant as long as the basic premise, an elder or elders give you counsel and a subset of you do listen, a subset don't, and there are consequences for those who don't and positive outcomes for those who do. If that's what you're saying, right? Like right. that that level of like negative truth or... Well, I, I think so because in a lot of the Old Testament, we read things and it sounds terribly harsh or the numbers sound totally unreal. And so we might be thinking, well, did they just, you know, did they make up the numbers or was it that they didn't care about the numbers because it wasn't the point? There's actually a, there used to be a, um, sorry, I'm taking a look for a book here. There was an Old Testament study manual the church put out that actually discussed uh, the problem with numbers. It was really interesting, but. Yes, I think I know the one you're talking about. It's a great question. So first of all, I'm going to recommend a book for you which is The Ark Before Noah by Irving Finkel, decoding okay. the story of the flood, okay? Um, obviously, this is not written, this is not a religious book. This is an atheist who wrote it, but it's not attacking religion per se. It's it's really about the oldest okay. extant story of the flood, um, which was only recovered in the, you know, well, as he points out, um, you know, the language was, deciphered and learned in the 19th century and and then only in very recent times um did the whole story kind of come through and he specifically has found missing bits of it that show that the oldest art if you will um would have looked nothing like what we imagined so i recommend that because your question is a good one let's see how to answer this there's two ways to answer this there's the honest answer and then there is another honest answer. <laughs> so, well, let's go with either both of the honest answers then, so we can compare them. Let's let's start with the lesser of the two. Okay. You cannot give someone meat before milk, and the truth is, is that most people, most people, I'll just say that first of all, uh-huh. but especially not especially most people, but certainly most people within our church don't know much about anything. They have no points of reference, but they have so little knowledge about the depth and complexity of the world that they can't possibly grasp the real arguments that surround their little tiny area of discussion. Okay. So to, to take an example, we were talking about linguistic diversity. One of the great benefits of being a linguist who, who, who looks at languages all over the world and interacts with all these different cultures and and reads all these things is you start to get a feel for not just the diversity that's out there, but also what's shared. And right. Okay. So when I look at, at, at my religion, I look at it through the lens of a scholar. I give it the same benefit of the doubt that I would, if I'm learning about uh, a mythic story from the Panim, right? I'm. Sure. I want to know what are the functional motivations behind Mormonism. Why are Mormons doing what they do, right? And so, for me, what would be considered controversies if you're trapped in our American culture 
are irrelevant. They, they, they mean nothing. So one of the problems I see is when people try to get into these discussions, how can you have a discussion about what's real in the Old Testament when you've never looked at biblical Hebrew and you never looked at historical reconstructions of proto-Semitic and you don't understand the linguistic situation in Mesopotamia, how, how can you have that discussion with somebody? You can't. It's, it's impossible. It's much deeper than it looks on the surface, you're saying, it's, in order to really get into it and understand it. I don't even, I can't even imagine what it would look like on the surface. I mean, you're looking at an English translation from 400 years ago of a Hebrew version, but Hebrew is not the original language. Right. Hebrew is not the oldest language. Abraham wouldn't have spoken Hebrew. He says he comes from right. Ur of the Chaldees. He comes from Mesopotamia. And Abraham right. is pretty far removed from the patriarchs before him. And we imagine that somehow somebody 3,000 years ago, thousands of years after Abraham, many thousands of years after the patriarchs preceded him, just knew it all and wrote it all down. And, and then the Joseph Smith translation makes a lot more sense to me in the sense that if you really look at his process, he's very open about it. Joseph Smith was... If, if we were to look at other cultures, like you look at the Pomo, the Pomo had people they called dreamers and stuff, right? They, they had prophetesses. They had people that would receive information through dreams. And, and if, you know, it's very common in other cultures to have people who experience the sort of things that Joseph Smith is mocked for experiencing. Right. It's an uninteresting situation to many other people. It is an artifact of kind of very dour, cold Protestant culture that was trying to throw off what it thought were the excesses of Roman Catholicism. <laughs> it is an artifact of that, that we don't acknowledge a spiritual side. Yes. In, in certain ways. Well, it was a very closed and, and very uh, shut tight uh, Calvinist society back then, I think. Safe to say. And there's layers and layers to that. But there's right. it's very much the case that when you look at other cultures, they are not the slightest bit concerned. Like, um, my wife's got a distant cousin who's... Um, He's a member of, he's related to several tribes in the area, but he's um, he's actually affiliated current, you know, as a citizen of of a, a reservation a little north of hers. Wonderful man. Um, his wife is a, a Mormon Polynesian woman from a, a very devout Mormon family, and um, you know, he's not he's not a member of the church. But years ago, he told me he goes, he goes, I got no problems with some white boy seeing an angel and finding gold plates. He had no problem, not the slightest <laughs> qualm. He just wasn't, he said, he literally told me, he goes, he's not sure he's willing to commit to the things you'd have to do. But that wasn't, that didn't even play, in, that wasn't even on the radar with a problem. That's an absolutely normal, plausible, possible series of events from his cultural perspective. Yep. Why couldn't there be that? Well, same thing on my so mission. I, I found that, that uh, in the Dominican Republic, that belief as to whether or not a vision could happen, that wasn't really, that was not a stumbling point for them. No, because Roman Catholicism never got away from that. Yeah. They still think you might see the Virgin Mary anywhere. Right. Exactly. And the pancake and you I, just I, cooked, for I, example. I, I, say it one more time. You might, yeah, you might yeah, see yeah, the imprint yeah. on the pancake. You know, that, that kind of thing is but, common for them. And I'd like to defend that really quickly. Yeah. That gets mocked. And think about how beautiful it is that those people believe you can see the hand of God in the most mundane things. I agree. I agree. So that's, that's my little... My little uh, rejoinder to those who had mocked that, you go ahead and live your dull, boring, horrible life where there's nothing spiritual or magical <laughs> around you. I want to be with the people that see magical beings and pancakes. And we're told, that sounds and really I wild. believe we understand it, we, we know it should be this way, that the hand of God is in all things. And little signs, Absolutely. we should not we should not mock those. I agree. No, we shouldn't. And I think that that's, to me, like the thing that I love the most about the restoration and the message that Joseph Smith brought back was it was very much an attempt to reunite man with God and explain that God cares about the little things. Right. He cares about the little people. The meek shall inherit the earth. By small and simple things will great things come to pass. And I think we're always in danger of losing that. I think that that is the big struggle that we have, that will Mormons be some horrible subculture full of negative attributes, which is honestly how a lot of people see Mormons in America, and sometimes I see us that way, or will we be the bearers of this message, of this transcendent message that everyone matters, the smallest things matter, and God is there for everyone. He oh, cares well about said. everything, and he doesn't just care about everything. Yep. This earth is a testament of his existence, 
And so he wants us to explore the depths of the ocean because there are creatures from top to bottom because they please him. And they will testify of him as well. And I don't see most Mormons acknowledging the creation. They, they, would, they would battle you over their stupid backward idea of what they think the creation is, but they sure won't go and look at the creation. And there it is, just waiting for them. <laughs> and it puts me absolutely nuts. It puts me absolutely nuts. I'm, I couldn't be more frustrated by that. That's like, where, where is where do we blame appreciation it? for what I would be the other testament, the, which is the earth? Oh, hey, there's a lot written right there that we can learn from, isn't there? It's just there for the taking. You just need to, to learn me, it. To me, God gave us this so we can we can just look at it in awe and think and feel. And, and, you know, see some of what he has done. See yes, but religious people don't do it. They spend more time trying to twist the facts to fit whatever narrative they imagine is real. They don't want to see. It's horrible. It's a crime. That's my little soapbox. On that. <laughs> well, I appreciate your soapbox. Thank you for joining us today for the first half of this interview with Dr. Alex Walker. Join us again next week. I'll release the second half in a week and we'll talk to you more then here at Religions.